2: Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.
1: From The Recount, I'm Rina Ninen, and you're listening to The Recount Daily Pod. Today's Tuesday, July 27th.
3: My worry for the next election cycle is that we will lose our democracy.
1: That was attorney Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket, on the heated and partisan battle over voting rights. We'll get into that and what it means for voters a little bit later on, but first, your morning headlines. The Department of Veterans Affairs is now the first federal agency mandating vaccinations of its employees in a growing push to fight the Delta variant. President Biden's administration announced that all healthcare workers within the VA will be required to be vaccinated. That includes physicians, dentists, podiatrists, registered nurses, physician assistants, and others who work in departmental facilities or provide direct care to veterans. New York City and California also made announcements that all of its employees will have to be either vaccinated or take weekly COVID tests. New York City's mandate impacting all municipal employees goes into effect after Labor Day. California's state mandate, which also includes those in a health care setting, police officers and teachers, goes into effect in August. The move comes as the Delta variant is spreading across the country, with all 50 states seeing an increase in cases this past week. According to the American Medical Association, 96% of physicians are fully vaccinated. But that's not the case for other people working in medical care facilities. Only 60% of staff in nursing homes are vaccinated compared to 80% of residents. Currently, only 50% of the country is fully vaccinated. President Biden announced in an Oval Office meeting with Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadhimi that all U.S. combat troops will leave Iraq by the end of the year. He went on to emphasize that the United States would continue to train and assist the Iraqi military in their fight against ISIS. The announcement comes as the Iraqi prime minister faces criticism from politicians back home, demanding American forces leave. Britney Spears, new lawyer, filed on Monday to have father Jamie Spears removed as conservator and replaced by Jason Rubin. Rubin's a CPA who specializes in forensic accounting. This will be her second attempt to remove her father. And now to our daily deep dive. The fight over voting rights has evolved into one of the most heated and partisan battles of the year, taking place at multiple levels across government. The White House, Congress, the Department of Justice, and at state capitals across the country. Democrats claim Republicans are trying to disenfranchise voters in order to benefit their party. Attorney Marky Elias, founder of Democracy Docket, is helping make their case. Mark, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So why is this such a hot button issue and why should Americans care about this?
3: So Americans should care because it affects democracy. We only have a democracy if everyone who's eligible to vote is able to vote and have their vote counted. And unfortunately, in the wake of Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election, we have seen Republicans in state capitals around the country trying to restrict the right to vote or fence out of the political process voters who they fear won't vote for them. So these laws typically target Black voters, other minority voters, and young voters.
1: Give us a little background here. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 got rid of what was known as a literacy test, and there were other Jim Crow tactics to protect the rights of Black voters. Then in 2013, the Supreme Court, it's a case known as Shelby County versus Holder, rolled back some key parts of the act what exactly happened here
3: so what happened in shelby county is that one of the main enforcement mechanisms was as you said deemed invalid Um, And that was a provision that said that if your state or county had a history of discriminating against minority voters before you could change voting laws, those new changes had to be reviewed by the Department of Justice's voting rights section to make sure that they were not retrogressing. In other words, they were not making voting harder, or more difficult for those minority voters. Um, Section five, as it was referred, didn't cover the whole country. It just covered those places with histories of voting discrimination. And so it was a really, really valuable tool to make sure that those places didn't return to the bad old days. In 2013, the Supreme Court said that that formula used to pick which states and jurisdictions were covered under section five was outdated and struck it down. But the good news is Congress can reauthorize by coming up with a new coverage formula and reinvigorate the uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's part of what would be in the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act that Congress needs to pass
1: the US Senate block passage of the For the People Act its a bill to expand voting rights by use of the filibuster the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act has yet to be introduced in the Senate but presumably the sense is that this act would potentially be blocked by Senate Republicans through this filibuster so president biden has so far shown no support for overturning the filibuster rule many say that's really the only way that these two bills can pass in the Senate what specifically are these bills And how can Democrats get them across the finish line?
3: So taking the second one first that we were just talking about, what the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act would do is restore Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and would also make other changes to the Voting Rights Act to strengthen it and to make sure that it is as vibrant today as it was in 1965 when it passed Congress, in 1982 when Ronald Reagan spearheaded reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, and in 2006 when the Voting Rights Act reauthorization passed 98 to nothing in the U.S. Senate with broad bipartisan support. So, the Voting Rights Act re- reauthorization and extensions have not historically been partisan or controversial. They are viewed, The Ronald Reagan called the Voting Rights Act the crown jewel of American democracy, and historically both parties have supported that crown jewel. But sadly, as you say, Republicans now look like they want to break with that bipartisan commitment to protect minority voting rights the for the people act which is the bill that has been getting most of the attention because it's the bill that was introduced as HR1, which means it was the first bill introduced in the new Congress in the House, and S1, which means it the was the number one bill in the Senate. Um, that has passed the House. It is in the Senate, and there you have staunch Republican opposition. What the For the People Act would do is set a minimum floor for voting. So think of it this way: the For the People Act would say everywhere in America needs to provide a certain number of hours of voting, a certain number of days of early voting, and allow no excuse absentee uh, voting by mail. So it would set minimum standards so that whether you were living in Alaska or in Wyoming, whether you were in Wisconsin or Alabama, you would have certain basic voting rights across the country. And then states could alter their procedures and provide more in-person, more vote by mail, more early voting, more whatever, but it would be a minimum set of standards. And unfortunately, that effort right now is in the Senate with Republicans fighting it tooth and nail.
1: When you step back and you look across states here, 18 Republican-controlled states have passed 30 new laws that now make it harder to vote, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. What kinds of restrictions are in the legislation?
3: In order to understand why these bills are so harmful to voting, You need to understand how they interplay with various other provisions in the same bills and also uh, laws that are on the books. So, in broad strokes, what these laws do is they make it harder to vote by mail, thereby disincentivizing or making it less attractive or even possible to vote by mail. And then they curtail in-person voting, either through early voting hours or days are allocated or election day, polling locations, hours and the like are allocated. So that what you have is a squeeze on voting rights from all different directions. Well, when you do that, it doesn't hit all populations the same, right? Because think of it this way, if you are in a major urban center and you restrict the number of polling locations, it's gonna have a greater impact on the length of lines than if you do it in a more rural area. So here's a statistic that I oftentimes use. In the Georgia metro Atlanta counties in the primary election, there was a study as part of a piece of litigation that I brought that showed that if you were in a precinct that had where 90% or more of the registered voters were minorities, your average wait time at poll closing was 51 minutes. If you were in the same six counties and you were in a polling location where 90 percent or more of the voters were white, the average wait was six minutes. So 51 minutes versus six minutes is the default that we are coming into the changes, for example, in Georgia with. Well, if you now do things to make it harder to vote by mail, what are you going to do? You're going to push more people into voting in person. If you make it harder to vote early, what are you going to do? You're going to push more people to voting on election day. And if you then deprive them of food and water, who are you really harming? the people you are harming and disincentivizing from voting are the people who are already waiting in line 51 minutes. And now those lines are going to be even longer. So it's important to understand how these provisions, not just in isolation sound, but how do they work as a whole? And in general, we see an attack on vote by mail, restrictions on other kinds of voting. And then the second category is significant changes to how elections are administered and how they are certified. Essentially, making those more partisan, making them less professional, so that the outcomes of elections, the counting of ballots and the certification of elections will be less subject to the professional bipartisan efforts that are currently underway and are replaced with purely partisan Republican politicians.
1: We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Mark Elias on the Recount Daily Pod.
2: the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers
1: Welcome back to the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. We're here with attorney Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket. What's your biggest worry for the next
3: election cycle? My worry for the next election cycle is that we will lose our democracy. You know, democracy is a very fragile thing and its core is free and fair elections. And my worry for the next election is that We are going to have a system of voting in which some people are welcomed in and some people are fenced out and where some people's ballots are counted and other people's are at risk of not being. And that will be a tragedy both for the outcome of the 2022 election, but it'll be a tragedy for our country, because once you start down that slope of deciding which voters are allowed in and which voters are not allowed in and which votes count and which don't, there's really no stopping point
1: what do you think the likelihood is that one of your suits could end up at the Supreme Court with a conservative majority and somehow the ruling really benefits the Republicans?
3: Yeah. So, look, I worry about that every day. I wrote a piece about that recently, that I don't have the luxury of standing back and waiting for a generation to go by and for the Supreme Court to change its composition because voting rights are right now at stake. And so I worry about that. But I am also determined to do everything I can at this time when our democracy is at stake to fight in courts. The courts are there when the political branches fail to protect fundamental rights, and the right to vote is a fundamental right. So we turn to the courts, because not because they are the best venue, Congress is the best venue to solve this problem, but we turn to the courts because Ultimately, if Congress fails to act, it's what the courts are for. So do I worry about a conservative Supreme Court? Do I worry about conservative courts of appeal? Of course I do. But, you know, we recently won a case in New Hampshire in that state Supreme Court. Another group uh, case I wasn't involved in won a very important voter purge case in Indiana before a fairly conservative Seventh Circuit. So, you know, we have to have confidence that our courts will hold um, and preserve democracy.
1: So, Mark, this July, the Supreme Court voted in Brnovich versus the Democratic National Convention. This took a look at Arizona's election policies. The court actually upheld two Arizona laws that looked at voters who voted in the wrong precinct and limited who can actually deliver an absentee ballot to a polling place. And the court said the policies actually, in turn, didn't violate the Voting Rights Act. It didn't have any sort of racially discriminatory purpose. How do you think this changes the landscape
3: of voting rights? In full disclosure, I was involved in bringing the Brnovich uh, case on behalf of the DNC, uh, and we litigated it to the Supreme Court, and we're disappointed with the outcome, obviously. I think the Supreme Court was wrong. I think that Justice Kagan got it right. It's not helpful. It deals with another provision of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. But it's also important to realize that most voting rights cases are not actually brought under any section of the Voting Rights Act. Most voting rights cases are brought either under the First and Fourteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, or they're brought under uh, state constitutions or other statutory provisions. So it does not close the door on Section 2 cases the way that Shelby County did with Section 5. But it certainly made the tests more difficult for what are called effects cases. And I think the court got it wrong. I think if you read the facts of the Arizona situation, the ruling in Brnovich is a tragedy for Native American and Latino and Black voters in Arizona, who will now be blocked out of the process in some really meaningful ways. Hopefully, Congress, as part of the John Lewis bill, will restore that. The good news is what the court did in, in was just a matter of statutory interpretation they claimed to be interpreting section 2 of the voting rights act and congress could change that but it's not going to it's not going to fundamentally close the courthouse doors it's going to just make certain kinds of cases harder and that's really unfortunate
1: you mentioned supreme court justice elena kagan the court in her view she said had treated the the voting rights act worse than any other federal law do you agree do you think that's true and and how do you explain that
3: I agree with her and it is almost inexplicable given its history. Ronald Reagan, conservative icon, called it the crown jewel of American democracy. It was widely trumpeted by Democrats and Republicans alike until Donald Trump. I mean, that's the thing, that's the craziness of Trumpism is that Republicans embraced the Voting Rights Act, Democrats embraced the Voting Rights Act. Everyone understood its importance and centrality to having a more perfect union of fulfilling the promise of America. And yet the Republican Party now treats the Voting Rights Act shabbily. And we have seen that now in the courts. And that's incredibly problematic for a country that is still struggling with racial discrimination in voting. And the Voting Rights Act is, is there to prevent that.
1: Well, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Mark Elias on The Recount Daily Pod. Welcome back to The Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. We're here with attorney Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket. How do you win more people in Congress to get on board with these changes with the Voting Rights Act? Is it through business leaders? Is it through citizens? Where do you see the potential for progress?
3: So I think that's one of the really important questions of our time. I've sort of given up hope that Republican politicians will do the right thing, right? We didn't see them do the right thing in the post-2020 election. We didn't see them do the right thing even after the violent insurrection in the nation's capital. We haven't seen them do the right thing over setting up a January 6th commission. i sort of given up hope that there are more than a handful of Republicans on Capitol Hill who will do the right thing. But I think you put your finger on it with the business community. The American business community is very powerful and very innovative what it wants to be. When it puts its mind to a policy or a change of culture, there's a lot the business community can do. And we saw the business community lead on these issues in, 20, in 2006 and in pushing George Bush to adopt uh, reauthorization of the Voting Arts Act. But where are they today? Where are the business leaders? They are largely issuing empty statements and then doing very little or nothing. And the time for that has to change. Democracy is good for business. And yet business leaders seem to want to just bask in the obscurity of mass statements and proclaiming, well, what are we to do? When have we ever heard business community say, we're powerless to do anything? So I'd love to see the business community put its muscle behind HR1 for the People Act and the John Lewis Act. I'd love to see the business community put their muscle behind these blocking these state laws. And I'd love to see the business community put its muscle behind finding innovative solutions that will solve these problems. Because, you know, if our business leaders can put uh private passengers into space, they can sure as hell help figure out systems to make sure our voters are registered and that people have time off to vote, and that people's votes count. The president of the United States called the current situation we're in the biggest crisis of democracy since the Civil War. Think about that. Think about all the crises our country has had since the Civil War. And President Biden, who is not known for hyperbole, said this is the biggest crisis of democracy since then. And so I'd ask everyone across the aisle to just say, let's just make it easy for everyone to vote. Let's just take down barriers to voting and let the chips fall where they may on who wins elections. Maybe it will help Democrats, maybe it will help Republicans, but I know one thing, it will help democracy.
1: Attorney Mark Elias, founder of Democracy Docket. Mark, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: And now to the look ahead. Here's what else we're watching today. The first hearing into the January 6th insurrection begins today. Witnesses will include two officers from the Metropolitan Police Department and two members of the U.S. Capitol Police. The purpose of today's hearing is to get personal accounts from officers who were at the Capitol during the attack. One of the officers testifying, Michael Fanon, was assaulted during the event, ending up unconscious and suffered a heart attack and a concussion, which led to a traumatic brain injury. He currently is struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. The Tokyo 2020 Olympics continues with the United States gymnastics team aiming to win its third straight gold medal. U.S. swimmers Lily King and Ryan Murphy also seek repeat wins tonight. Lily King is looking to become the first woman ever to win the 100-meter breaststroke more than once at the Olympics. Ryan Murphy is looking for his fourth career Olympic gold on the 100-meter breaststroke. But the big game to watch tonight is women's softball, where the U.S. faces Japan for the gold medal. The last time the two teams played at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the U.S. lost to Japan 3-1. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you back tomorrow morning. Have a great day. This is the Recount Daily Pod, a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. Our thanks to Mark Elias for being on our show. If you like this episode, I hope you subscribe to the Recount Daily Pod and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Rena Ninen.